What we really want to do is let our leaders lead and be out in front. And uh, you know, we need to talk about ourselves a little bit more. We're experiencing the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. With this podcast, I'm going to connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times. I'm your host, Randy Moore, CEO of the AANA. Joining me today is Mr. Adam Spiegel, who is the Chief Executive Officer of North Star Anesthesia. Adam has been in his role since about 2018 and has an incredibly oppressive background in healthcare leadership. He actually brings over 20 years of business development and operations experience within the healthcare industry. Prior to joining Northstar, Adam served as an executive vice president of provider growth at Optum, a subsidiary of United Healthcare. Before his time at Optum, Adam spent more than 15 years at the advisory board company, where he served in a number of different capacities, primarily focusing on general management, new product launches, and go-to-market strategies. Adam has a Bachelor's of Arts degree from Yale University and an MBA from the Wharton School of Business. Well, Adam, this is a real pleasure uh, to get to spend some time with you. I've known you for about a year-ish. Uh, you know, we've, we've had the opportunity to talk on several times, and, and pandemics have a way of bringing people together. <laughs> and uh, so it's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better over the last year. You know, I read your, your bio on the intro, which is just exceedingly impressive. And I, I like to say that I, I graduated from Southern Illinois University uh, Business School, which I characterize as the Wharton business of Southern Illinois. So I, I, think, we, I, think, we have a lot of, I think we have a lot in common. Uh, we're both from Ivy League business schools, but we, we can talk about that later maybe. So look, uh, you have your hands full here, <laughs> running, running a large anesthesia business in an intensely disruptive period of time. Like pre-COVID, I was running around the country telling everybody it was the most disruptive time in the history of healthcare. And then COVID hit, and then boy, uh, boy, did it that that accelerate. And we can debate whether COVID's a change agent or accelerant. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But I, I'm really curious what you're seeing in terms of changes in the anesthesia business world, uh, whether it's in the context of COVID or a little bit even predating that, or a little bit of both. What do you what What are you and your team seeing? Yeah. So I, you know, from my perspective, I think it starts with the economics of what's happening with hospitals and healthcare. So if you think about the vast majority of anesthesia that we do is sort of inpatient uh, focused and has been for years. And that's been a lot of the orientation of a lot of both, uh, you know, anesthesiologists, CRNAs, and anesthesia practice management companies. The challenge has been that if you look at the way that the world is working, you know, hospitals make probably 70 to 80% of their income on 30 to 30% of their business, which is surgery. They don't make money on the inpatient side of the business. And what's happened over the last few years is that increasingly, Surgeries are moving from an inpatient setting to an outpatient setting. And there's a double whammy that happens, which is, you know, if you're going to do a total knee or a total hip in an outpatient setting, you're not going to do it on a frail patient or an indigent patient with lots of complications. You're going to do it on a healthy, well-insured patient. So not only is the hospital seeing surgeries overall declining in profitable service lines, but the mix of those patients is they're losing their commercial patients far more so than they're losing their Medicare and Medicaid patients. And hospitals lose money on Medicare and Medicaid patients. The way that they actually break even is commercial. So from a hospital margin perspective, their margins are getting squeezed pretty dramatically. What I would say has happened with COVID is it's accelerated that process. So what we've seen across the country is that 
surgery center volumes took a big hit, but they came back much faster than inpatient volumes. And, you know, the theory behind that is that it's an accelerant. Surgeons were forced to use surgery centers because hospitals were either designated COVID centers or whatever it was. So if they wanted to do surgeries, they were doing them in the outpatient setting. And they said, hmm, it's efficient. It's clean. It's easy to get to. Maybe I'll continue to do this. And oh, by the way, I can own a share of this. So I get that much more money for you know the surgery that I'm doing versus going to the hospital doing the same surgery. Maybe I will move my patients out there. So I do think that it's not that COVID changed the pattern, but I think it's been an accelerant of this move from surgery being in the inpatient side to increasingly migrating to outpatient and even in the physician office. I think we're seeing more and more uh, both surgical advancement in the inpatient in the office setting and the need for anesthesia providers. Yeah. And you know, that's I'm thinking I'm putting myself in the shoes of a CEO of a hospital or a health system where the economic engine is typically its operating room followed closely by its emergency room. And we look at, you know, you know, the surgical care affiliates and other companies of, of the world who are saying, yeah, I'd I really like that, uh, and I would like to have more of that in the outpatient surgery center environment. And you know, there are people who are trying to eat their lunch and coming at them from multiple directions. How how do you think that these 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 CEOs uh, in the boards of these hospitals are going to reposition themselves in, in an environment where everyone is coming out after their market share? Well, we spent a lot of time on this um, in my previous companies at Optum and the advisory board, and it's not a great answer. So I think what a lot of CEOs are doing is they're saying, hey let's consolidate because I need to become more efficient. And the best way for me to do that is if I merge with other hospitals, we can save money on the revenue cycle. We can save money on, you know, backend systems, IT, um, those kinds of things. And they're basically, it's a race to the bottom of, hey, how do I become as efficient as possible? What you're seeing from more progressive centers is they're saying, look, I'm not going to win this battle. So if you can't beat them, join them. So you're starting to see the surgery partners, the SCAs, uh, the USPIs of the world increasingly partnering with hospitals to set up surgery centers because mm. the hospitals themselves say, I need a piece of this action. Now, it's going to continue to make the inpatient business harder for them because yeah. they're sort of, they're, they're, they're cannibalizing themselves. But I think you're seeing that most progressive health systems are actually getting more into the surgery center business as a result. They're also trying to solve the problem by acquiring physician practices. So they're thinking, hey, if I could at least own the surgeons or own the primary care physicians, I can keep those surgeries from going to places that I don't work as a way to stem the tide. But it's a, you know, it's over time, it's a losing battle. And what's going to happen is, you know, hospitals are going to increasingly become medical businesses and they need to think about their economics very differently than they have over the last 10 years. And that's going to be pretty disruptive. And it's hard when, you know, to be honest, for, to bring it back to us, you know, the number one or number two expense line for most hospitals is anesthesia because it's a subsidy-based business on the inpatient side of the house. Yeah. And double-clicking on that just a second in terms of, there's two things I'd like to unpack there. One is hospitals and health systems trying to change their business model at scale <laughs> pretty quickly. You know, and, you know, is, is part of that, you know, I've heard, that, you know, this, this concept of, of maybe even reimagining themselves as population health companies. And, and, and position themselves in that way uh, where they can control more of the patient life cycle or have influence and in, in, in capitation through that. And do you think that there's a play there that's going to be successful for these, the hospitals and systems, health systems that can do this strategically? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's an 80-20, unfortunately. I think for 20% of the health systems, that might work. So the Kaisers of the world certainly are in that boat. I think if you look at a lot of the systems that have been in capitated markets, like you know systems in Minnesota, systems in California, I think that actually is a direction that a lot of them are going. It's harder for other health systems because 
they don't own the assets. So you look at, you know, if, if I was to bet on somebody, you take an Optum as an example, you know, United Healthcare has the managed Medicare lives, which, you know, capitation really matters in terms of becoming a population health manager. They own the urgent care centers, they own the surgery centers, and they own the primary care physician. Yeah. And would you bet on them or would you bet on a hospital? That is the cost center of the place that you basically want to avoid if you're managing value-based care. Adam, you can, but I think it's pretty clear right. who you bet with. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the other big payers, Aetna, you know, Humana, they're all moving in the same direction, which is they're trying to become population health players as well. And to be honest with you, like, you know, you can, by just keeping people out of the emergency department and keeping them out of the hospital, that's the biggest opportunity area you can have from a, you know, population health perspective. So to think that the hospital itself is going to be the one that's going to win that battle, it's, it's a long putt. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's pivot because you'd, you'd mentioned that, look, it, it, this, this is impacting the anesthesia marketplace in, in, a, in a meaningful way too, right? And uh, the, these hospitals and health systems are, are under a lot of economic pressure. Their margins are dwindling. And some of them are only open because they got COVID relief. And you think about, well, what, do, what are the long-term prospects? So they're increasingly turning to you, Adam, and say, okay, our margins are pressurized or under constraint. We're providing a subsidy of some kind, more likely than not. What are you going to do for me? <laughs> so how do you, how do you in, in that environment where, you know, you know, that there is an increased expectation and increased economic pressure, how, how are you in, in North Star positioning themselves? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a few different things. I think one is you, we really have to think of ourselves as more than just a supplier of bodies. Because in general, you know, at a high level, what our job is, is they've got X number of ORs they want to run every day and they have to be staffed. And our job as North Star is to make sure that they're staffed with fantastically credentialed and high quality providers. But how they're staffed, the number of ORs they want to run every day, the protocols that they're, you know, they're running, you know, those are really generated largely by the hospital. The hospital says, I want X number of points of service. I want to run, you know, X number of points of service between seven and three and Y number between five and nine and X number uh, after hours. And that's based on what the surgeons are telling me they want to do. And you staff it. Well, to be honest with you, whether it's us, another you know, player in the market, whoever, from a cost perspective, we're all going to cost the same, basically, right? As an anesthesia company, as the tolerance for that amount of stipend spend goes down, we've got to start adding value beyond just putting bodies in place and really thinking about, hey, how do we drive efficiency in the OR itself? I think all of your listeners will probably say there's a lot of times that they're in ORs that are not run efficiently because you may have a large block for a, you know, politically savvy orthopod who doesn't use it. And, you know, if we really were running those ORs more efficiently, we'd be using them more effectively. I think the other thing, and I think this is the big opportunity for your listeners, is changing how the staffing models work. So as you think about the economics, you know, if you can have something done by a CRNA, that traditionally was done by an anesthesiologist, or, you know, there's still a lot of pockets in this country that are anesthesiologist only centers. And if you can start to think about more of a team-based approach to anesthesia care with CRNAs working top of license, that's a more efficient model of care. So we have been, you know, having a lot more conversations with our hospital partners about, you know, there are certain things that we could do, obviously, to increase efficiency. There are certain things we could do, though, that can actually change your staffing model which is if you're interested in a more team-based approach, if you're interested in allowing our CRNAs to operate top of license, that's going to have multiple benefits. And one of them is going to be that it's going to be a more efficient place to work for you in terms of your stipend's going to go down. 
The thing, the other piece of this though, is around standardizing care. And when it comes to some of the value-based care metrics, there is a big part to play as an anesthesia provider. If we do our job well, we can reduce opioid utilization. If we do our job well, we can reduce length of stay. We can increase on-time starts. Uh, we can reduce complications. All of these have downstream costs for a health system. And that's a piece that we don't oftentimes get a lot of credit for, but a high quality anesthesia organization is actually going to drive savings to the hospital that are bottom line versus one that is not as uh, strong from a quality perspective. And I think that's the other big chunk that we can do as an anesthesia provider. So if we can run the OR more effectively, if we can get our teams working top of license and we can increase quality, and some of that, it's not all on the anesthesia team's shoulders. It's working with your surgical partners to put the right protocols in place, ERAS, it's thinking about the entire perioperative continuum, you actually can drive down costs for the hospital. So then it becomes more of a conversation of, yes, anesthesia may cost you a little, but we're saving you a lot more money on the back end. And you can be very explicit around why you need to spend the money you are spending on anesthesia. Yeah, I think that's a really important takeaway. Whether you're North Star anesthesia or you're a CRNA is employed by a hospital uh, or a smaller group, it's about perceiving your role maybe a little bit differently than, than what we have historically, which is uh, how do you bring value to the hospital and viewing the hospital or the ASC as a partner, truly a partner. And because and, that's what these folks are really need who are in healthcare administration really want. They want to know that, at least has been my experience, that, that they want to know that the, 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 that the anesthesia group or the anesthesia providers are bringing value. And then the less that we, we articulate that, the more vulnerable we are uh, for some of this disruption, some of the churn that, that we're seeing. And, and I think the days of us and like, I, I'm a nurse anesthetist, so I, so I can speak, you know, to this to some degree is sneaking in the back door, doing the anesthesia, you putting the pajamas on, doing the anesthesia, and then sneaking out the, the back door when the day is done and not interfacing with the healthcare decision makers in the facility, uh, not consistently thinking about and bringing value to the facilities in which we work. I think those days are over because uh, there's a lot of pressure around, as you said, Adam, the, one, of, you know, one of the top one or two expenses on the light on is, is anesthesia providers. Yeah, and the only other thing I will say is it's also about, you know, us as an organization with Northstar, but also for, you know, us as practitioners of anesthesia is starting to follow the surgeries. So mm-hmm. as we think about, you know, the next 10 years for Northstar, we're going to look more like the market. We're going to be doing more, more ASC work. We might have to start doing some office-based work because that's where surgeries are going. And that's where the anesthesia needs are. So I think as, and what's, what's interesting about that is as you start to move into those other settings, the tolerance for excess costs, well, yeah. it's one thing if you're a surgeon, you're at a hospital and you know, you're running an inefficient shop or you insist, hey, I need an anesthesiologist to do everything. It's very different when it's your surgery center and you're paying the stipend, right? right. Yeah. So in that world, you know what? That same surgeon becomes much more open to you know, allowing CRNAs to work top of license and I do think, you know, you start to see, you know, there may be in the future differentiation around CRNAs that can do regional blocks may get higher compensation than those who can't. And because those skills become more valuable for the providers that are in some of those alternative care settings. So I do think that that's the other interesting thing is as, you know, our CRNAs become more trained and are able to start to do more and more at the, the high end of uh, what they're capable of, you know, those skills are going to be valued by the market increasingly over time. And there may be significant differentiation in pay in the same way that from an anesthesiologist, there is differentiation if you are, you know, if you're 
can do livers if you you are a pediatric anesthesiologist, if you've got specialty in cardiac anesthesiology, like you are going to get a higher compensation than a general anesthesiologist. I wouldn't be surprised that if you're looking out a few years that the CRNA starts to, to see that differentiation as well. Yeah. And, and with all of this disruption and just the dynamic environment that we're in, it, it, a lot of this is going to boil down to Sure, the you know the the executives like you making the right strategic plays, right? Whether you're whether you're you know you're you're running North Star, whether you're a CEO of a hospital, that's important. But it's also going to boil down to clinical leadership too, right? I mean, you're only going to be as strong as I think the strength of your clinical leaders, right? Because they are day in and day out interfacing with other uh, providers and with the healthcare decision makers in a way that you, you you frequently are not, right? And absolutely. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, how's North Star approaching that that opportunity or need around clinical leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a great issue to bring up. And it's something that, you know, we've really been focusing on um, in a very different kind of way over the last couple of years, because when it comes down to it, the job of the chief or the medical director at a facility, that's sort of the key person, because that's the person that if you're going to make any change, you know, Northstar could say whatever we want. But at the end of the day, the people they trust are the leaders on the ground. And that's what I mean from a hospital administrator perspective, from a surgeon perspective, from a fellow anesthesiologist perspective, like the people who are going to drive change are the leaders on the ground. And as a result, the need for those leaders to be able to do a lot, like, you know, obviously there is always the bar of they need to be excellent clinicians. They need to be able to manage teams well. But I think the, the need for these people to truly do change management is something that hasn't existed as much um, in the past. And I think it's, it's incredibly important to be able to manage multiple constituencies to drive to a different end result. And that is a, that's not an easy skill set to find, um, especially when, you know, traditionally it's, hey, you're a good clinician. Uh, nobody else wants to run this place. Anybody, you know, are you willing to do it? And that's yeah, kind of uh, how you find uh, the chief. Yeah. You know, I think it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's these people have to understand the business side of things. They need to be incredibly good at, at working across, advocating for their teams, working across boundaries, elevating problems. You know, in, in a lot of ways, my job as CEO of Northstar, you know, we're kind of the corporate back end. So our job is to try to make life easier for the front end. We're not, you know, they know much better than I do what the right situation is for that individual facility. Our job is to make their job as easy as possible. So where can we take things off of their plate? Where can we upskill them? So I think we spend a lot of money and time in leadership training. So, you know, as not every CRNA understands like the business of anesthesia and how that works, we've been training a lot on understanding that side of things so that when they're in the CEO suite, you know, our chiefs are holding their own and they're able to drive the right decisions. Because as you said, even when we're there, we don't understand really how things operate on the ground. Nobody knows how the OR really works better than your chief CRNA. And if you can get them to the point where they're making the argument with the CEOs, when they're making the argument with the heads of surgery, when they're partnering with their medical directors to do so, that's when you have a really effective team on the ground and you can make some real change, not only for the team, but for the hospital. And I think that's where you know, we need to aspire to be. So that's a piece where we really, as a company, have been doing a ton of investment in is how do we get our line leaders to, you know, be even more capable than they already are. And, you know, it's a, it's a journey. These unfortunately are not things that you can do a two week training course and right. suddenly you're, you're done. This is a multi-year process and it's hard uh, because, you know, as a company like ours and, you know, we have several peers, 
this isn't a quick fix. So this requires a multi-year investment. And uh, we obviously are dedicated to do that, but you know, it's not always that easy to be thinking five years out in terms of building that bench. Um, but to be fair, it's going to take that much time to do so. Yeah. I think that's one of those areas, whether you're a physician, anesthesiologist, or a nurse anesthetist, that you know, we, don't, we don't get a lot of, uh, in my case at least, any leadership you know, uh, development in my, my anesthesia training. And, uh, no, nothing, very little on healthcare policy and what it means in terms of how it impacts the healthcare environment where I work. And, and I'm wondering for someone who, who has an incredibly impressive academic preparation and then uh, the work that you've done at the advisory board and then Optum and now at North Star, if you had advice for a CRNA or a physician anesthesiologist around what you think are the, the key skills they would need to acquire to, to, to shift from thinking themselves as purely cl- clinician, but also, but then a clinical leader. And, and we know that there's multiple stops on that, right? So there's, you know, there's, there's the mid-level leader, you know, and then there's the, maybe the VP and then maybe the, the leader who has an, a, an executive uh, mindset, you know, strategic mindset. What do you, what would you boil it down to? What you're seeing consistently with clinicians who, who are bringing that kind of leadership acumen to the table? You know, it's, it's a funny thing, but I think it is the, and it sounds easy, but it's, it's understanding trade-offs, which is that when there's an ask for something, how is that ask actually impacting the economics of the business? Mm. So if my team is saying, hey, I want callback pay, right? We don't have callback pay. I want callback pay or I want beeper. You know, it's not fair. I should get some beeper coverage. Um, I should get paid an hourly rate for, you know, anytime I'm, I'm on beeper call. Well, that sounds reasonable, right? But that is going to have an economic impact on the contract. So there's always a place where you say, okay, how is that going to impact the contract? And then if I understand that, can I come up with a trade-off where there's something that we don't care about that we could save money on in order to spend the money on the beeper call? Or you know, I'm comfortable because we've been actually adding two points of service without charging the hospital for it, just because we have people around, they're willing to stay a little bit late, and we've been doing that anyway. Well, rather than do this, let's package that beeper call into a conversation with the hospital about, we need to change the site bit. So we need to get the money from them. Or, you know, it's a conversation around, hey, based on the margin we're making on this business, we've been doing great margin for this hospital. Let's give some of that margin back to our CRNAs and come up with a pool of money so that I can figure out how to allocate that most effectively to keep the team happy. And what I find too often is, I think our team leaders are very good at understanding what some of the asks are, but not necessarily what the trade-offs would be. So I would trade off a higher hourly pay for a, you know, this benefit, which nobody takes advantage of, or, you know, I, nobody cares about the deeper pay, but everybody's really upset about the CU, the CU value. So mm-hmm. if we can get more dollars towards CUs, we don't need the deeper pay. It's that kind of understanding of the, of the impact of those asks on the overall business. And then sometimes it's just their, you know, little things that actually don't really impact the bottom line, which is, you know, let's, this is a crappy lounge and our team feels undervalued because we have crappy coffee. We don't have soft drinks. It's going to cost you $3,000 a year to have a new coffee maker and fill that up every day. And that's going to make a big difference for the team. Like that actually isn't a very big ask mm-hmm. and we should do that. And if you're not doing that, you're not a very, you know, this is how you need to help us North star is that there's some little things that annoy everybody Let's get, let's fix those because they're not really economic asks. They're something else. 
to to do that well, you've got to understand sort of the how the business, how the contract is set up with the hospital and what those levers are. And I think that the more that the leaders, the chiefs, the medical directors, sometimes even the individual CRNAs are aware of the business side of how this all works, those things get resolved really well. Where you run into problems is when there is no understanding and it's just a, gosh, you know, we need to get, you know, our conditions are bad. We need to pay, get paid more. You know, we need to do this without understanding the overall contract makes it much harder to get uh, those changes accomplished. Yeah. That's really insightful, Adam. And, and I agree. I mean, having a conversation when someone who says, there's a problem, I need you to solve it <laughs> versus this is a problem. And if I were you, I would explore these one, two or three options. And I recommend option one. I think that's the best, but option two is okay. And option three stinks. It, it makes your life and, and, and your team's life a lot easier. And it also helps the clinical leaders to understand the business. Yes. And, and, but, and go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, to be fair though, we have done a terrible job of equipping you know, our chiefs and medical directors with that information. Because right. I think that's part of the problem is we need to be comfortable sharing more of the economics with our frontline leaders yeah. in order for them to be able to do that. So I don't think this, I think this is both sides need to be better about giving visibility into how the business is run so that they can make those more appropriate um, trade-off decisions. Yeah, I like that. That's great. And so I, I have one more question for you that sure. uh, I've stolen from Dave Stachowiak, who is, does a podcast called Coaching for Leaders. It's pound for pound, the best leadership podcast out there. And I, I recommend it frequently. And his question is, which I've stolen, uh, is what's one thing that you've changed your mind about in the last, uh, the last year has been interesting. So that could be the time frame, or, uh, or anything you want to, any time frame that you want to tackle here. Sure. So, you know, for me, it has been, it's a great question because I think it's always, it's always a hard one to answer. For me, it has been around sort of our company as a brand or really bringing that to the forefront. My take coming in has been, the reality is our teams tend to be attached to the facilities that they're in and who cares what North Star thinks? Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like North Star is sort of the corporate guy. It doesn't really matter. What we really want to do is let our leaders lead and be out in front. And they should, you know, they should be focused on the facilities they're in and we're kind of in the background. And, you know, I think what this last year has taught us is that, or taught me anyway, is that we need to be out in front more and we need to be talking more about culture. We need to be talking more about our values and not just, you know, internally, but also brag about our teams, you know, talk about them more, get more into PR, show examples of where we are truly excellent and sharing those best practices, even internally. So I think it is, you know, it's it's a place where, you know, if you'd asked me, you know, 18 months ago, hey, you know, how do you think about marketing or PR? I would say, why would you think about marketing or PR? <laughs> like we're, you know, we're largely a staffing company and, you know, our job is to make sure that we're recruiting well and letting our leaders lead. But the reality is it's a, uh, you know, it's a big part of what we now, what I now need, I think we need to do, which is we need to get out in front. We need to advocate for our teams and, uh, you know, we need to talk about ourselves a little bit more. And I think that's a, that's been a big change. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. I always think about the quote from Peter Drucker. He says that businesses are usually about two things, innovation and marketing. <laughs> so uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it's okay. It's, yeah, it, it, you know, telling people what you're doing and, and bragging on yourself is, is a good thing because if you don't, people, people don't know and, and or they tell them. Exactly. The story. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Adam. I, I've really enjoyed picking your brain for the last 30 minutes or so. And uh, I look forward to maybe a future conversation on, on some other topics too, if you're interested. Sounds great. Pleasure as always. 
Thanks again, Adam. And thank you to those who are listening to this podcast, where we connect you with industry and CRNA thought leaders to help you thrive in these unprecedented times.